Good morning, church family. It's been about two months since I've, I've done this. I'm a little rusty. Good thing I have the perfect text to work with. My name is Chris Rojas. If any of you don't know me, I'm one of the affirmed elders here at Church of the Canyons. And it's, my, it's my privilege and honor. Um, this morning we'll be returning to our, the, the Sermon on the Mount. And our main text will be Matthew 7, 7 through 11. So please get out your Bibles and rustle those pages over there. You can swipe too, I know. Before we read the scripture, um, let's go to prayer and ask God to illuminate our hearts and minds uh, for godly godly living. Heavenly Father, there's many distractions in this world, and I pray this moment that you enable us to put those aside and feast on your living word. May you illuminate the text by your Holy Spirit and cause our minds to be transformed and our faith to grow. It's in your son's name, Christ Jesus, that I ask these things. Amen. By the way, I'm just so blessed. Bill, thank you. Thank you for your prayers. I, thank you. And um, the Christian Living song, like, I don't know that one. That was rich and awesome. They were all awesome. Thank you, worship team. So as a first order of battle, let's, let's read God's word. Um, please turn to Matthew 7 if you're not there. 7 through 11. I like to do this right up in front because if I happen to hit the ground, I did my job. Right? <laughs> Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be open. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Matthew 7, 7 through 11. So maybe maybe your Bible is like mine and it's subdivided with a theme for one or more verses. Um, And this is super helpful at a glance, but sometimes we forget that the message uh, that was was originally heard in the Sermon on the Mount uh, was not that way. While many, many things are said in the Sermon on the Mount and worthy to dwell on verse by verse, what we read in the beginning of chapter 5 and ends in chapter 7 was given to these people and us as one stream of logical communication with a steady flow to accomplish a major, overarching, groundbreaking purpose. And that purpose is revealed to us at the end of chapter 7 in verse 28 and 29. And Matthew records that um, there was an immediate result of Jesus' sermon. He was incredibly effective. Um, I'd like you to turn there. It's really close. And uh, let me read that to you. It says, when Jesus had finished these words, this is 28 and 29, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Matthew 7, 28 and 29. The result of Jesus' interaction with people was intentional. His ministry was polarizing. You either loved him or hated him. And his aim was to be noticed by all, especially the religious elite. His ministry would be marked with teaching as one who would have authority. Not being a scribe, 
Uh, he, he was one of the rare ones of an agrarian society that could read. The culture was largely based in farming for crops or livestock. And reading wasn't a necessity. He likely learned how to read because his father, Joseph, being a carpenter, etched letters into wood and stone. And this is just a fun fact um, that the area that Christ grew up in, it was very, it's very sparse of trees. So anybody who was, uh, any man who was trying to make a living as a carpenter uh, carving wood would have a very hard time. Joseph was likely a stonemason. Um, it doesn't really matter, but it's fun to think about, especially uh, when you think about uh, how many references that Jesus makes to rocks and stone. And it's kind of endearing knowing that Jesus grew in wisdom. And uh, as Jesus reveals these words to us of rocks and stone, the cornerstone, the buildings, the temple, the brick by brick, um, he was likely communicating things that Joseph taught him as they etched stone together. Just has a lovely father-son moment. Uh, That was just a freebie. Anyways, for your thought. Um, So Jesus began his ministry by traveling from synagogue to synagogue throughout Galilee teaching. And his teaching ministry put him in direct opposition to the goals and scribes and the the goals of the scribes and Pharisees who that's where they were. And I referred to his steady flow of logical communication. And I want to take you on a quick tour through the Sermon on the Mount to show you that while each of these themes, they can stand alone, um, they are, but they are all tied together. So humor me for a moment um, as this tour, uh, it, it, we're going to run it backwards from end to beginning. And I'm going to summarize in a very big way. So please turn with me to chapter 7 starting in verse uh, 24 and 27, where Jesus compares two builders, making the statement that his house, Jesus' house, is the only one that will stand. 21 to 23, he oversees the the kingdom or the, the house. 15 to 19, he issues the verdict for those who challenge his authority. Destruction is what his verdict is. He, 13 to 14, he issues the verdict for anyone who chooses to follow the wrong authority. Destruction, same thing. He issues a main rule on how to conduct yourself in his house. 7 through 11, his father has enough to provide for everyone's needs. 1 through 6, he prohibits pointing out lacking in others until you lack nothing yourself. Notice the, the spec and the log in verse 4. In the eye. Chapter 6, 19 through 34. Nobody will go lacking if they depend on God's giving. Notice the special mention of the clear and dark eye in 22 and 23. We're going to visit those. 16 to 18. He encourages you to, to, to secretly deny yourself from the good gifts of earthly comfort and see how he will lavish you with abundance. 5 through 14. His father knows you and loves you and wants you to have a personal relationship with him. He will protect you and give you all you need day to day forever. One through four, he encourages you to secretly give to those in need from what he has given to you and watch how he will lavishly give you in abundance. And moving into chapter five, verse 43 to 48, love your neighbor and promote them. 38 to 42, don't tear others down. 33 to 37, be true to yourself and others. 31 to 32, cling to the oath of marriage. 27 to 30, don't think and do things that lead to divorce. 
21 through 26. If you have a problem with someone, solve it with them. Don't move on like it doesn't exist. That's paired with murder. 17 to 20. What he says is true and he lives it perfectly as a proof, not like the scribes and Pharisees. 13 through 16, follow his example and be a source of clarity and preservation on this earth. And finally, 3 through 12, you'll be happy if you live this way. God-like characteristics will naturally be yours as sons of God and the abundant lavishing he provides will be irresistible. Thank you for that. So I said these themes can stand alone, but like Dwayne says, I love, he says that uh, the, the scripture has integrity and you can connect dots and it all makes sense. It truly is the inspired word of God. And what a masterpiece from heaven that we hold in our hands. This is God's word. So beyond surveying the Sermon on the Mount I'm, uh, and pointing out that the comprehensive, uh, that it was spoken comprehensively from start to finish and that he has integrity through and through to point you to God through it. I had another motive in sharing that survey the way that I did. So here's the thing. Many people have uh, taken this text um, that we're reading today, Matthew 7, 7 through 11, and have held it in isolation, incubated from the surrounding text. And as a result, many have, many have read this part of scripture and have, pre- and have preached um, if that if you name it, you can claim it. That God is like a genie in the bottle just waiting for your every whim to satisfy your every desire. And many have interrupt, in, interpreted this part of scripture to propose that, that, uh, who, that those who are more wealthy or healthy have a stronger relationship with God. Even others have considered that because they are not healthy or not wealthy, uh, that they are not a child of God or even worse, not loved by God. And I spent, a lo- uh, I spent the last couple of weeks on this passage, um, and each time I tried to put pen to paper, uh, I had writer's block, and something was really, it was troubling me. I, I felt like I was trying to put a square peg in a round hole, or, or even an oblong peg in a circular hole. It was like, it's like, it's all, it all fits, but it's just not quite right. You see, um, what, I, what I've heard my whole life about this passage is tr- it has true implications about prayer, about God. If you ask in, his, in Christ's name, he will give you abundantly. You, he, if you seek, you'll, you'll find him. He's available. He's reaching out. If, if, you, if you knock on his door, he wants, you to, he wants you in heaven. All of those things are so true, but contextually, it just doesn't fit. And so, a major question I had, and that it was the roadblock, if, if this section, 7 through 11, is all about prayer, why is it in chapter 7? Why isn't it in chapter 6? In the Lord's Prayer, or as we know it, the Disciples' Prayer. It should be before it, or above it, or, or didn't blow it, or, or in, embedded into it. But no, it's not. Here, here it is, in chapter 7. So I was really pondering and really puzzling. So, uh, I did what James 1.5 says, but if anyone act, lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. James 1.5. It was following a couple of weeks after uh, praying that chapter 7.5 leapt off the page. And it says, chapter 7.5, you, you, you should be right there or page away. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. 
Jesus puts a problem out there. And how often do you hear God saying, take care of yourself? Got me thinking. So let's camp on that word picture that Christ uses of having a log in, I'll say it, my eye. The word log is more accurately translated beam. It's like the the one here (laughs) above our heads, right? And it, and it, he proposes that one of those things is sticking out of my eye. And how could I be a po- possibly be a help to anyone else uh, with, with this thing that, like, uh, you know, I can't even help myself. I can't even see. This analogy is introduced because of what Jesus says in verse 1 and 2. He says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Matthew 7, 1 through 2. So there it was. The answer to my prayer for wisdom was provided. The it in our verse 7a, which is ask, and it will be given to you, is referring to the standard. It's the standard that we're to ask for. And not my standard or your standard, God's standard. And when we measure with a standard of our own, it's akin to using a ruler that's been shattered and then scotch taped. It's akin to me telling you that in the event of an earthquake, run under this structure. (laughs) When it's cardboard boxes with construction paper. God's standard, that's what it is. We are to ask for his standard. So let's return to the concept of a functioning and non-functioning eye that Jesus talks about in chapter 7, 5. It is also found in chapter 6, verse 22. And let's take a look, since it's right there, let's go to 6, 22. It says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So then, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. Matthew 6, 22. So that's the goal. Just listen to this next list of verses that speak specifically about Jesus and the light and him being the true standard. I love that Christian living song. As as I was listening to that, I was just like, man, that's so apropos for this text today. So Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's nature. Hebrews 1.3. You see how Jesus here is referred to as radiant. And then in John 1, 4, in him was life, and the life was, guess what? The light of men. John 1, 4. And there it is again. Jesus is the light of men. And yet again, in 1 Timothy 6, 16, he, poses immortal- he possesses immortality and dwells in inapproachable, guess what? Light. So he, in 1 Timothy 6.16, he alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So the true standard to judge by is Christ, since Hebrews 1.3 refers to him as the exact representation of God and Jesus says in Matthew 5:48 that the standard is perfection. Here he says 
to you in, and me in the Sermon on the Mount, all of his disciples. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's the standard. And he's the exact representation. So the standard is Jesus. He is the standard. Jesus', Jesus, Jesus accomplished work set the standard. And that standard is perfection for the sons of God. And you know what? That's bad news. That's bad news since 1 John 1, 8 says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1, 8. When we stand in this position as an unrighteous judge of others, we forget that Jesus says in Matthew 6, 23, following that verse of 22 with a clear eye, but if your eye is bad, that means that you have sin in your life, undealt with sin, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Matthew 6.23. So brothers and sisters, understand, since you have sin in your life and I have sin in mine, we do not make good judges and cannot make good judgments about ourselves. So what do we do? That's a, that's a predicament. 1 John 1.9 suggests, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there's a solution there's a solution to this problem. That's, so that, that's it. We, we came full circle. We measure ourselves by God's standards. So I, and, and when you, have a beam in our eye, we do what Matthew 7, 7a says. Ask, and it will be given to you. The standard, the standard. It's Christ. It's from the word of God. Without this, if I hide this, the standard becomes me. Until you're better than me, and then the standard becomes you, and then I'm going to become better than you, and the standard's now me again. It's some weird ping pong game of spiritual decay. Again, it's referring to the standard, the truth that we find in John 14, 6, when Jesus says, I am the way, the, you want to say it with me? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. John 14, 6. So we are to ask and God will give us the true standard that we are to measure against our own selves. This is found in Christ's example and in his written word. So let's move on to 7b in our text. It says, seek and you will find. Seek for what? We already know that if we ask of God, he'll make us aware of the standard to measure up to. What are we seeking for? Well, we haven't left the analogy yet. We're seeking for the beam. Simply knowing that you have a beam in your eye, it doesn't do anything. <laughs> in VBS this week, I met one of the sweetest girls in our, in our tent, and we went down to Christy Davis's crafting table and I decided to go up to the Bloomberg Cinema and grab some popcorn. Sat down and talked with her, chatting, chatting, you know, back and forth. Really, really gentle, lovely. It was really sweet. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, came this soggy, flattened piece of popcorn out of my mouth and onto her arm. I was mortified. 
and it just sat there. It literally kind of just pasted itself. And we both stopped in, in, in our place and looked at each other and looked at it. And, and as mortified as I was, I, wasn't, I was not mortified enough because it went deeper. She, she just turned and accepted that it was okay. Oh. My filth applied on some poor little kid. And as gross as that is, sin is infinitely more grotesque. The Bible tells in, in, uh, in 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 2, of individuals who will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits of doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. 1 Timothy 4, 1, 2. See, it's not enough to know that you're a sinner and that you are sinning. James 2.17 says, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. James 2.17. So when you have asked God where you are failing, and he gives you that answer, your next move is to heed the words of Ananias to Saul. You know Saul, the Christian slayer, who became Paul eventually, right? This is in Acts 22.16. Ananias says to Saul, Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and be awashed of your sins, calling on his name. So the, the Ananias' admonition is perfect. Why are you delaying? You know what's wrong. Why are you delaying? Wash it off. Right? How? By Jesus' name. And that leads us to our next text in verse 7c. It says, knock, and it will be opened to you. So I ask again, what is it that will be opened to you? Contextually. Remember, still, we're still in the analogy. Chapter 6 and 7, they tell us what it is. It, it's your eye. It's your eye. You've got this beam in your eye. It's dark. The darkness isn't just in your eye. It's riddled through your whole body. It's not enough to just to know that you're sinning or sinful. You've you, you got to seek it out. And once you find it, you got to knock it out. Knocking out that timber with the truth that is revealed to us through the true standard of scripture enables for that doorway to be opened. John 8, 31 to 32 says, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know that the truth, you will know the truth. And the truth will, that's right. Set you free. Make you free. John 8, 31 to 32. So brothers and sisters, you need to know something about this language Jesus is using. Ask, seek, knock. These are grammatically constructed as present imperatives. So let me explain for, for those of you who don't know what that means. It's, uh, it's, see, this is written in Greek, and English doesn't have a, 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 a a common thing to, to explain it. Like we have ing and ed and er and these endings. But this, this is, what this is saying is that you to ask, seek, knock continually. It's like infinitely. It's ne- it never ends. You never 
finalize the action. It just keeps going and going. So ask, seek, knock all the time. Never stop asking God to reveal your sins. Never stop seeking to find your sins and the roots that are so invasive and deep and, and they find those little tight corners. And never stop knocking out those sins by the power of Christ, his name given to us to overcome. So moving on to verse 8 of our text, for, it says, For everyone who asks receives, and who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. So here Jesus seems to repeat himself. But is it repetition? Recall his audience. These are those who heard him at the beginning of his ministry. We find that in Matthew 4.23. It says, Jesus was going through all Galilee, Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Who's in the synagogues? Who's in Galilee? Jews, the Hebrews. This is his audience. These are his disciples. His audience was Hebrews. So what seems like a repetition would in fact be an expansion of grace, the grace of God to a new, larger territory, target, Whereas verse 7 says, you, which is his disciples, in all the commands and promises, verse 8 is now including who? Everyone. Whoa, that's a big difference. That means all. Alfred Larchin, <laughs> all means all, right? This is likely a glimmer into what Ephesians refers to as the mystery, a fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham and, 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 and to Eve in Genesis 12.3. I'm sorry, in Genesis 3.15. Abraham's covenant, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abraham was the father of the Hebrews, which produced the line of David, which produced the promised Messiah that Genesis 3.15 refers to, and that's Jesus Christ, the revealed great mystery is the church, the family of God comprised of both Jew and Gentile. And I can't help, I can't help but take a moment and read Ephesians 2, 14 and 16. It says, for he himself, that's Jesus, is our peace, who made both groups, the, the Jews and the Gentiles, into one and broke down the barrier, the dividing wall, that separation that was mandated by abolishing in his flesh, that's his crucifixion, that he might make the two into one new man, that's the church, thus establishing peace and might reconcile, because he's the prince of peace, and might reconcile them both in one body, that's the church, to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. So that, that may seem like a lot to process and I just kind of whirled through that, but if you're not a Hebrew this morning, <laughs> or ever, if you ever weren't, I don't think you ever will be. That would be a surprise. But if you are not a Hebrew, but you are a kingdom citizen, this language, this is on your adoption certificate. Let's never forget it. Returning to verse 8, he uses the word for, which is also translated indeed, which expresses a causality or even a continuation which they both apply, they both fit. There's a linkage here to what Jesus spoke about in chapter 6. That God desires to hear from you through prayer. 
And there's something so very sweet about a father who spends some time listening to their little ones. We saw a lot of that this week. Uh, one evening, we, we finally let go. Flora said go. And all the parents rushed in. This, this father ran at her, his daughter and kissed her like they hadn't seen each other in months. It was so sweet. And then she exploded talking about Cliff Towers and, and what she learned about Joseph and, and the songs. And, oh, I got to show you this hand motion, you know? <laughs> I got to speak into the microphone and say omnipotent. And they, they, they wanted me to spell it, but we ran out of time. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, God wants to hear from us through the vehicle of prayer. It's ever clear, as we saw in chapter 6, 8, that God already knows what you need before you ask him. But he has designed the relationship to wait, for him to wait until you do ask him. If you're at VBS you, you, uh, or visited, you, you might have seen that off of this beam here, we hung a 10-pound medicine ball and we put that thing in motion, right? Big, giant pendulum. The thing about a pendulum is that Eventually, without any influence, its illustrious, magnificent flight through air comes to an unimpressive stop. But if in the cycle, you give it just a little tap with each cycle, that thing will go indefinitely. Same thing goes with your life, your Christian life in prayer. If you're not addressing God daily, you're, you're, you're going to start slowing down. Right? It actually reminds me of an infant on a park swing whose knees haven't quite developed. And her only means of continued joy is to squeal through her giggles to her daddy who's pushing her from behind, saying, more. That's your heavenly father. What Jesus is highlighting here is that he wants you and I to be continually connected with the father having a proper perspective that is not impaired by hypocrisy. And as a reminder of how Jesus defines hypocrisy, Matthew 23, 27 uh, says, well, (laughs) Jesus rips into the scribes and Pharisees and says, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which are so beautiful on the outside, but inside they're full of dead man's bones and uncleanness. And having only an appearance of righteousness is the essence of hypocrisy. It's when we are freed from the bondage of our self-righteous attitude that we, by Matthew 7, 5, will see clearly to take the speck out of our brother's eye. So moving on to verse 9 and 10, Jesus gives reference to two situations that are as equally ridiculous as the beam in the eye. And that's a man who would misuse a plea from his own child. Recall that it was an agrarian culture. A child was a major asset to the household. A familiar, familial ties were very strong. For a father to toy around with his own child and cause him to crush his teeth when his child thinks he's biting into a loaf, but instead it's a stone... Or (laughs) to honor a child's desire for nourishment, this horrible, foul man gives him a viper 
to raise to his mouth. Having spent the whole week with children, um, this hypothetical situation that God, that God prov- uh, provides, Jesus provides, it, it makes me cringe. Terrible. That's awful. And each man hearing Jesus' analogy would certainly, introspectively, reject the notion that would be anything similar to this foul man and, and his foolishness. But what Jesus is setting them up for is a test. Each man, including me, when hearing this hypothetical situation, would kind of straighten up a bit. Maybe puff off his chest a little bit, raise his chin up, put his shoulders back. And just a little bud of self-righteousness would pop up in the heart of the hearer. What a perfect teacher. And then whammo. Verse 11. If you then, being evil, oh, you got me. You got me. Yeah, I would never do that to my child. I'm too good for that. I'm better than that. There it is. The perfect master teacher provides application. He's right. I'm evil. I want my sons to know that I'm evil. I'm not righteous apart from the conveyed righteousness from my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And they need to know that they're not either. It's clear I need to ask for his standard so that my mind would understand. I need to seek the areas of my heart that have been poisoned by self-righteousness. I need to be effectively strengthened on God's standard and how I apply to my attitude and behaviors. Hey, look. Look at that. Mind, strength, heart. Ask, seek, knock. When I'm continually mastering these things by the word of God, I'm loving him with my soul. And there's Jesus doing it again. His his words are unsearchable. That's the great commandment of Mark 12, 30. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, with your mind and your strength. And then I'm reminded in verse 5, Matthew says that when I have been purified, I will truly maintain a desire to take the speck out of my brother's eye. The second great commandment, Mark 12, 31, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Mind, heart, strength, soul. Now my brother. Jesus' teaching is always on point and the depths are unsearchable. Each utterance of Christ's truth is perfect. There is no guile in him. So having just convicted every man and woman, Jesus leans heavily on the awareness of their awareness, that they have a knowledge and capacity of good and evil. And under common grace, mankind has their moments. But the well of the soul is polluted. So even though, as Matthew seven eleven says, a parent would give, gift, give, give good gifts to their child, in comparison to the good gifts that the, our Father in heaven offers, those gifts would wilt 
like grass in the hot sun. The emphasis here when Jesus asks rhetorically, mind you, in verse 11, how much more will your father who is in heaven give what is good? Is an emphasis not on quantity, but quality. Sure, Jesus admonished us uh, in chapter 6, verse 31, do not worry then uh, what you will eat, what you will drink, or what you will wear for clothing. And assured us, as Fred taught us in Matthew 6, 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Fred helped us see Jesus' point was putting the kingdom first and his righteousness. Jesus, not Fred's. Surely, Jesus wasn't saying that we would always have food, drink, and clothing. Many people have lost their lives in seeking first the kingdom of God. Where was Job's clothing when he was scraping his flesh off with pottery? That doesn't make any sense. He said, he said it was a righteous man. So remember the reverse survey that we did. This is a good sound of music moment. Let's start at the very beginning. <laughs> it's a very good place to start. When you, be, when you read, you begin with A, B, attitude. Beatitude. The good gifts or blessings that God has to offer you that surpass loaves and fish are as follows. Let's turn there. Chapter 5. Verse 3. These are the good gifts of God. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They shall be comforted from mourning. They shall inherit the earth. They shall be satisfied by God's righteousness. They shall receive mercy. They shall see God. Oh, one day. Could be today. They shall be called sons of God. And yet again, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, rejoicing and gladness. These far out measure anything that we could ever give to our children. The early church believed this and operated accordingly. A study of Acts will show how committed they were to the family of God and seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness committed to the family of God. I appreciate what Matt said the other day and, and uh, just kind of addressing you know, people who are concerned about not having a senior pastor and like, oh, I think I'm going to leave or I'm going you know, to complain and grumble behind the scene. No. You know what? Commit to the family of God. And all these things will be added to you. What? A senior pastor? Hopefully. This took me 19 hours to put together. <laughs> I had a full work week and VBS. Not to brag, just, I want a senior pastor, folks. <laughs> but let's get our eyes off ourselves. Let's seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to us. Let's return to the, te to the, to the last part of our text for this morning. It's the last five words of Christ's comparison of what man can give versus what God can give. The comparison reads, How much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to 
Here it is, five words. To those who ask him. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that there is certainly a predominant word utilized in this text. Maybe you caught it. Anybody know? Ask. Very good, thank you. A close second, highly used word is give. Give. And only because of the word receive was used instead of the word give, which has a connotation of taking. Jesus is very intentional. I believe he did that on purpose so that the focus would remain on ask. Jesus certainly closes this out in an emphatic way as he exclaims that the gifts are available for those who fervently ask of the Father. Now that we've thoroughly worked through our text, I'd like to briefly show you an example of this displayed in scripture. We're going to go from the words of Jesus, who was the covenantal fulfillment as the son of David, we're going to go from Jesus to David. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 51. And we're going to survey verses 1 through 13. Psalm 51. David writes these words, having obeyed his fleshly lusts and pursued the woman Bathsheba and despised the word of the Lord according to Nathan, in a display of contempt for God, God himself. David murdered the man Uriah after having committed adultery with Uriah's wife. Listen to David as he asks God to hold him to God's standard in verse 1 through 4. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. I think David found the standard. He asked. Now, let's listen to David seek and expose to God his iniquity from his birth to the present and from his skin to his bones. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin with my, my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the inner, in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and, shall, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. That's a good search. Next, not, not last, next, we listen to David knock for a restored condition of unobstructed view in verses 10 through 12. Let's read. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. That is a man who wants to be 
away from sin. Knock that out. I want to seek God clearly. Lastly, we listen to David's maintained desire to remove specks from others' eye and the condition he must be in. He acknowledges it to do so. In verse 13, he says, then. That there then, that then there, I don't know. It's referring to everything we just read. The ask, the seek, the knock. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will be converted to you. (laughs) It's complete. He did it. So in closing, I have a few questions for you and myself based on this study. And in fear of you going to sleep, I'd like you to close your eyes and just be introspective about this. Do you think you're good? If so, how closely do you model Jesus' example? Is it perfect? Have you recently been critical of others? If so, would you say you are perfect in how you perform in those ways? This could be a secret judgment. Is fervent prayer for God's righteousness missing from your prayers? If so, With which sins have you resolved to be content? Listen to the characteristics of of a kingdom citizen. Being poor in spirit, mourning over sin and its effects. Being gentle, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Being merciful, being pure in heart, being a peacemaker being persecuted for the sake of righteousness, enduring insult, persecution, or defamation of character for Jesus' name. Do these characteristics seem to be different than who you know yourself to be on the inside? If so, and if you feel a conviction to change, ask God to reveal what's not consistent with his true standard. Seek out the depths of the decay and by the power of God, knock them out and gear up for service to the brethren. Let's pray. Lord, only you know who answered yes to these questions. I I pray that those who have answered yes and no are convicted in response to your word that we studied today. You are the God who saves. We need you. You are the author and perfecter of life and you've set the acceptable standard of a kingdom citizen at the level of your son's perfection. We are by nature not that kind of people. We are naturally wicked and it's only by your son's perfect example and his sacrifice that we might be able to call you our father who is in heaven. We hallow your name. It's holy and precious and set apart from evil. You are good and you are steadfast and patient. You are mighty and you stand with no needs. But for some reason, you've made the mightiest declaration of love through your Christ Jesus, our Lord.
Even now, he's building his church and inviting mankind into a sonship with you through adoption. I don't understand. I really don't, Lord. But we hallow your name. I lift up those today who have answered yes to any of these questions and pray that your Holy Spirit can do only what he can do to convict the heart, causing a bent knee. Thank you for being our loving and patient Heavenly Father, knowing who we are and what we need and even what we want. May our hearts become aligned with your will so that when we ask for good things, we'll be asking for the right things. May that start with an internal righteousness afforded by your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his holy...